I mentioned Joshua's birthday earlier, but before he has time to scurry off stage, we should also mention uh, the milestone in Mark's life. Uh, Mark's son was born. So there's that. So he says that the baby is healthy, mom is healthy, so just pray for them uh, as they start this new life with five kids yeah, instead of four. You heard him. So, so congratulations to them. But, uh, I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. And many of us can probably think of relationships in our lives that have changed. Relationships change because people change. And that's what makes up relationships. People. Now, sometimes these changes can be good, and sometimes these changes can be bad. For example, maybe an unexpected tragedy can bring people in a family together, even though they were marked by division before. Or maybe when a couple gets married, we obviously see that their relationship changes. They're no longer just boyfriend and girlfriend or fiancés. They're now husband and wife. The two have become one flesh. That relationship changes forever. But not only does their relationship change, but their relationships with their respective spouses' families. Those relationships change too. They're no longer just that person that your family member brings along to Thanksgiving. They're part of the family now too. That relationship has changed. Maybe you get to know someone better over time and your relationship changes as you discover that you have more in common with that person than maybe you originally thought. Maybe with other relationships, time passes and you build up memories with people and that leads to a deep bond that wasn't there before. People change and thus relationships change. This can be wonderful or this can be painful because as many people change, some relationships fade away completely. Now, as we've been through the book of Ephesians, we've talked a lot about how the gospel brings about change, how the gospel brings about transformation. And we've seen it in a lot of different ways. The gospel changes our identities completely from the inside out. We just mentioned how we go from being dead to now being alive because of what Christ has done for us. The gospel brings about change in that people who were once divided, there was once a barrier between them. When they're fellow believers, that barrier is broken down. We've talked about how the gospel changes our lifestyles, changes our words, changes our actions, because it changes our hearts and changes our minds. But today we're going to talk more about how the gospel specifically changes our relationships with other people, especially when those other people are fellow believers. So with that, open to Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 21, we'll also spend some brief time in Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Those two passages very much go hand in hand. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, that'll be located on page 838. And as Joshua mentioned, feel free to grab a Bible from the welcome desk if you don't own one. But before we read Ephesians 5, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, every single one of us in this room, we have relationships of some type. We have friends, we have family, we have husbands, we have wives, we have coworkers, neighbors, just all kinds of different relationships. And God, I pray that you would give us the humility and give us the wisdom 
to hear what your word has to say about how your gospel changes our relationships with those people. It changes our relationship with the person that we know better than anyone else on this planet. It changes our relationship with the teenager working in the drive through window. God, I pray that you'll just give us the humility and wisdom to see that. And I pray that our relationships would be marked by this change, would be marked by this transformation. God, many of us come here this morning from different situations. Some of us are in spiritual valleys. Some of us feel like we're on spiritual mountaintops. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us as you see fit. God, thank you that your word is powerful, that it has the power to change our hearts and change our minds. And I pray that will happen this morning as we hear it and as we read it together. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that's the verse that we ended with last week. Ephesians 5, 21. And it's the verse that we start with this week. And really, this verse, verse 21, sets the stage for everything that we're going to talk about today. And particularly, there's one word in that verse that sets the stage for everything we're going to talk about. And that word is submit. The point's pretty simple. Believers are called to submit to one another. Ephesians isn't the only place that we see this. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, submit to one another. In John 13, Jesus's final days before he is crucified, he tells his disciples an important lesson. As he gets down on his hands and knees, he grabs a basin, he grabs a towel, he washes his disciples' feet, even though he's their teacher. He's their master. If anything, they should be washing his feet. But Jesus teaches them that they ought to wash one another's feet in the same way that he washed theirs. In other words, submit to one another. In an extreme example, we see in 1 Corinthians 6, You have a situation where two believers, two fellow churchgoers, are in conflict. They're in disagreement, so much so to the point where they take their case to the secular court. And Paul says, would you not rather be wronged than take your case to the secular court and hurt the credibility of the church? Hurt our witness to the gospel because you can't get along about something? Would you not rather be wronged than have that happen? In other words, submit to one another, even if it doesn't seem fair. Now, you sometimes hear that the church is so countercultural when it comes to our teachings on sexuality or when it comes to our teachings on money. But I would argue that this emphasis on the word submission, this is highly countercultural. Think about it. In our world, submission, that's often seen as a bad word. When we hear the word submission, we think of weakness. If you really value submission, then you're just going to get walked all over. You're going to become a doormat. When we hear the word submission, we think that we're just enabling people who take advantage of others, enabling them to dominate and subjugate, often in the cases of injustice. 
Sometimes we hear the word submission and we think, you know, that just doesn't really jive with my values of individualism. If you want something, go get it, no matter who you have to take down in order to get it. Submission doesn't really seem to match up with that. And as a result, we rarely want to submit to anyone. Anytime we're faced with the problem of submission, we often immediately get defensive and worry solely about my rights. These are my rights. Why should I have to submit to you? Many believe that any type of prevailing power structures or institutions, anything or anyone that demands submission in any shape, form, or fashion are inherently evil. But this attitude about submission isn't unique just to our culture or our time or certain generations. This tendency, this desire to push back against the man, to fight the power, goes back much further than just us. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with one another, a perfect relationship with God. They are in complete and perfect harmony with all of creation. But they're given one rule to submit to, one command to listen to. And what do they do? They disobey it. Part of our desire to push back against authority, part of our dislike for the idea of submission, it's just simply part of who we are as sinful, fallen human beings. But regardless of how countercultural this may be, regardless of how much it may fly in the face of our guts, Paul makes it clear we're called to submit to one another because we follow the example of Christ. Look at what Jesus says himself in Mark 10:45. One of the most explicit addresses Jesus gives about why he came. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus submitted to God, the father, even to the point of death. So Paul makes it clear. Christians are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're called to submit to one another because we care more about their interests than our own. We're called to submit to one another in service. And we're called to emulate Jesus, the one who laid down his life in submission to God the Father for your salvation and for my salvation. And we emulate him by laying down our lives for each other. And no matter how strange it seems, no matter how hard it may be, this is our calling. Because the gospel changes our relationships that our relationships with one another might be marked by submission. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just leave it as some vague, abstract idea of submission. In the rest of the passage, he gives three specific relationship examples or relationship contexts. And those three are marriage, family, and slavery. Now, there are a few things to note before we look at these three examples. Number one, submission looks different when practiced in different relational contexts. Think about it. You don't submit to your parents the same way you submit to a police officer. You don't submit to your boss the same way that you submit to your spouse, or at least you shouldn't. 
Now, these three passages or these three examples, they can be and they have been abused. That's the other thing to note. These passages can be and have been abused to the point of injustice, to the point of subjugation. But we'll talk about that more as we go. So with that, let's go to example one, which is marriage, starting in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then in the Colossians 3 passage, verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What we see here is that for Paul, the husband is the default leader within a marriage. You can tell that Paul assumes a natural order of things, a natural order of creation. He even goes so far as arguing that the husband is the head over the wife, the same way that Christ is the head over the church. Christ exercises authority over the church, and the husband does the same thing for the wife. Now, if you just leave it like this, leave it at verse 24. This seems pretty harsh. It seems pretty outdated. Some might even say that if you embrace this, then you're on the wrong side of history. Well, if you leave it like this, the Romans would have loved it. The pagans would have loved it. The Roman Empire would have embraced it. Because back then, most wives existed solely for the purpose of children and homemaking. Men typically didn't get married because they fell in love. They got married that way they could have heirs after they're gone and a meal on the table. Marriage was rarely sentimental or romantic. More often than not, it was a transaction. Husbands gave wives a level of stability and provision and safety that they may not have been able to attain on their own. And wives gave husbands heirs. But in these marriages, more often than not, there wasn't much concept of love or commitment, or sacrifice, or respect. And while some people might be tempted to stop here, while the Roman Empire may have agreed so far, the problem is that Paul doesn't stop here. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as themselves. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then in Colossians 3:19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So while Paul tells Christian wives to submit to their husbands, you can't get around that. He also emphasizes the huge responsibility that Christian husbands have for their wives. 
that these husbands are called to love them. They're called to love them the way Christ loves the church, to the point of giving up their lives for them. They're called to love them like Christ loves the church for their good, for their growth, and for their sanctification and holiness. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, loving them more than themselves, loving them as their own bodies, which, of course, kind of harkens back to what Jesus said about love your neighbor as yourself. The same thing goes for your wife. Now, of course, as we husbands in the room read this passage, the question has to be asked, how seriously do we take this responsibility? Is our love for our wives marked more by selfishness than it is by sacrifice? Because that's not loving like Christ. Is our love for our wives simply neglecting their growth or their sanctification? Because that's not loving like Christ loves. Sometimes we might be tempted to neglect our own spiritual growth, much less our wives. Or sometimes we might even be tempted to focus so much on our own spiritual growth that we don't even stop to think about our wives' spiritual growth. And of course, husbands, are we loving our wives as we love ourselves? These are difficult questions that we absolutely must ask ourselves. Because Paul has given us a huge responsibility. Look at what he says in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, continuing the passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, for Paul, this is more than just some social invention. This is more than just some good practical advice that you can take or leave. For Paul, this goes back much, much further. Again, we hear about Adam and Eve. Paul cites Genesis 2:24. And husbands, we are called to be better husbands than Adam was. Think about it. Did Adam love Eve the way Christ loves the church to the point of self-sacrifice? Because what we see in Genesis is that when God confronts them of their sin, he immediately throws Eve under the bus to save his own skin. Husbands, does Adam love Eve the way Christ loves the church for her good and for her growth and for her sanctification? If so, he probably wouldn't have stood idly by as she walked into sin, and he participated with her in it as well. And husbands, did Adam love Eve the way Christ loves the church? Did he love her as he loved himself? Obviously not, because of the curse that came into the world. We are called to be better husbands than Adam. We are called to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And our wives are called to submit and respect. Now, of course, as we mentioned, there are many ways that this passage has been abused. So addressing a few of those things, husbands, this is not the club that we get to swing around to bully or dehumanize or have leverage over or silence our wives. That is not what this passage is about. 
And too many Christian men have used passages like this as their license to become vicious and cruel dictators in their own homes. That is not what Paul is talking about here. And if we believe that this is our license to keep our wives from speaking their minds to us, to keep our wives from rebuking us of sin, to keep our wives from being involved in any decisions that affect them and affect us and affect our families, if that's what we use this passage for, then we've missed the point entirely. Because that's not loving them the way Christ loved the church. And wives, you might be tempted that just because this passage can be and has been abused by sinful men, you might be tempted to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to push back against any idea of submitting to husbands or respecting husbands or honoring your husbands. And yet that's exactly what Paul calls wives to do. So wives, let me challenge you and encourage you to love your husbands, honor your husbands, pray for your husbands, even when it's difficult. Because I know it's difficult for Olivia every now and then. And of course, wives, one quick disclaimer. Don't follow your husbands into sin. If given the decision between honoring Christ and honoring your husband and you have to choose one or the other, it's an easy decision. Honor Christ. Because he is the true one deserving of our submission at all times. So when the gospel transforms our marriages into what God would have them be, both spouses will flourish, even if the world says that God's ideas are outdated or too traditional. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. That's example number one. Example number two is family. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Colossians 3:20. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So children are called to submit to their parents. Now, when we read these verses, especially the part about a commandment with a promise, hearkening back to the Ten Commandments, we might be tempted to think, okay, well, it seems pretty clear. If I listen to mom and dad, then God is obligated to bless me and things will go really, really well. Nothing will ever go wrong. But that's not what this is about. God gives his people commands that help them flourish. And it's safe to say that a child who is following Christ and as a result submitting to their parents who also are following Christ, it will be beneficial for them to submit and honor and respect. All throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see pieces of wisdom. Children, obey your parents. Children, don't neglect your parents. Children, soak up everything your parents have to teach you, because there's something to it, especially when your parents are submitting to Christ. Let's pick up in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3:21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become 
discouraged. So just like the marriage example, we see submission from wives for their husbands. And here we see submission from kids for their parents. But just like the marriage example, we see a bigger emphasis even on the responsibility of those who are leading. Husbands are called to love their wives. Parents are called to parent their children. We're called to parent our children in a way that displays Christ's love, not only for our kids to see, but for those around us to see. Paul specifically charges parents to teach and instruct their kids in the Lord for their good and for God's glory, that their people might flourish. Now, of course, the same way the first example could be abused, this example could be abused as well. Parents, this is not our club to bully or dehumanize or silence our children. Paul specifically addresses that abuse by saying that we are not to provoke our children to anger or to be a source of discouragement for them 24-7. In the same way we ask the question, husbands, how are we loving our wives? Parents, how are we loving our children? How seriously do we take this responsibility? When's the last time we had a legitimate conversation about Christ with our kids? When's the last time that we opened scripture together with our children? When's the last time that we taught them right from wrong, not just because it's not what we do as a family, but because we seek to honor God in every single phase of life? Parents, we have a huge responsibility, even though our kids are called to submit. Now, the same disclaimer goes for kids that we gave for wives. Kids, this is not your excuse to submit to parents when they lead you into sin. Again, if given that choice between submitting to mom and dad or submitting to Christ and you have to choose one or the other, it's an easy decision to make. Submit to Christ because he is our true master. Now, so far, with two examples down, we haven't really talked about anything too crazy Wives submit to husbands, yeah, sure, some people could bristle up against that idea. But throughout history, that's been an incredibly common belief and teaching. There are people today who wholeheartedly embrace this idea. Children submitting to parents, even more people would agree with that. At some level, kids, listen to your parents. Nothing too crazy so far. But then we move to our third example. And this is the one that seems a little bit out there. A little bit strange. And that's the example of slavery. Now, this would have been particularly relevant to Paul's audience. Some historians estimate that up to one third of the population of a city like Ephesus could have been slaves. Now, for the sake of context, it can also be argued that slavery in New Testament times was much more humane than what we've seen in American history. That by no means justifies it. That by no means makes it okay. If anything, it makes us think twice about just how horrible American history truly can be at moments. But nonetheless, as we think about this passage, it can be difficult. So let's look at it together. Example three, slavery, starting in verse five of Ephesians six. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, As you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Colossians 3:23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So if we take this passage at face value, we can't get around the fact that slaves are called to submit to their masters. And it's not just some superficial submission. Paul's talking about genuine, legitimate submission, as if you were serving Christ himself. That's how you're called to submit to your masters. We'll come back to that more momentarily. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians 4, 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So yet again, we see wives submit, husbands love. Children submit, parents parent. And here we have slaves submit and masters love. Yet again, just as much, if not more, emphasis on those who lead as there is on those who submit. Paul makes it clear that they are called to treat their slaves with justice, with fairness, and with dignity. Because ultimately, these slave owners know that they aren't the true master. Jesus is the true master. And he doesn't judge based on whether you're free or whether you own slaves. He judges fairly and partially. By his grace. Now, with the abuses with this passage, I've heard more than one non-Christian say, I could never believe in a God who endorsed slavery. And not only that, this isn't just in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament, where God or Paul seemingly is endorsing slavery. Now, let's be honest as we read this passage. This is not outright abolition from Paul. Paul does not insist that the whole slavery system be overthrown that very minute. However, there are a few things to consider. Number one, for Paul, that was not the main mission. Paul was not an abolitionist. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, declaring who Christ is and what Christ has done. Paul had tunnel vision. And he focused on the mission that God had given him. The other thing to consider is when you think about these principles that Paul sets in place, the principles set in place throughout the New Testament when it comes to slaves, these principles are a death knell to slavery. Think about it. Respect, love, decency, dignity, equality before God. If you're a Christian slave owner and you embrace these things, it won't be long before you're confronted with your own hypocrisy. Before you're confronted 
with the sin of slavery that you were participating in and that you are enabling. We read passages like Philemon 15 and 16. Philemon was a slave owner, one of Paul's brothers in Christ. But Philemon had a slave who got away, a man named Onesimus. Onesimus comes and serves Paul. He helps Paul in his ministry. But then eventually Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. But he attaches a letter with him. And we read in verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul makes it clear, Philemon, when you accept Onesimus back, don't accept him back as just a slave. Accept him back as a brother in Christ. Can you imagine what would happen if every single Christian slave owner began to take these principles to heart in the New Testament? Slowly but surely, slavery would no longer be a problem. But unfortunately, passages like this have been abused by Christians. In America, Christians took a passage like this to argue that slavery was justified or slavery was right in the eyes of God. And that is a horrible crime. And it is a horrible injustice and abuse of Scripture. If people do this, again, they are missing the point entirely and should repent of their sin. Because the gospel changes our relationships And it even changed the relationship between a slave owner and his slaves. Now, you might be thinking, you know, this sounds like a bunch of do this, don't do that. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, submit to your parents. Parents, parent your kids. And I don't even own slaves. So what does that have to do with me? But as we close, let's be reminded of why the gospel transforms our relationships with those around us. It transforms our relationships with those around us because the gospel has transformed our relationship with God. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. We're not going to have these verses up on the screen. You don't even have to follow along in your Bible if you don't want to. Just listen to what Paul says here. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. The gospel changes our relationship with one another because the gospel has changed our relationship with God. Let that glorious truth sink into your heart and sink into your mind. 
And as you examine the relationships around you, be reminded that you were once an enemy of God, and yet now you are a child of God. You were once a slave to sin, but now you have been set free by sin. And even better than that, you found a master who's actually worth serving. I pray that every single one of us in our lives, the gospel would have just as profound an impact on our marriages, on our families, and even our relationships with those who we are tempted to oppress, those who we are tempted to treat as less than human. I pray that as we see those relationships, that they will be transformed because our relationship with God has been transformed. The one who owed us nothing sent his son to die on our behalf, sent his son to shed his blood, break his body, spend days in a tomb, and then rise from the dead. Our relationship with God has been transformed by the gospel, by what Christ has done. And I pray that the gospel would change our marriages, change our families, change our friendships, change every single relationship that we have, that we might submit to one another for God's glory and for their good. Let's pray. Father, we read passages like this, and sometimes they fly in the face of what seems to be common wisdom, what seems to be the logic of the world, what seems to be in and up to date date and the latest, newest thing. But God, I pray that we would understand your word more clearly. And God, more than anything, I pray that We would submit to your word. There are times when we understand it, but we just don't want to submit to it. And so, God, I pray that you would give us that humility, that you would give us that desire to submit to your word, even when it flies against everything we thought we knew. God, I pray that as we read these passages, we would be challenged and encouraged by them, that we might submit to one another in all the different ways that that looks like. I pray that our relationships with one another, our marriages, our families, our friendships, everything, I pray that they would be marked and touched and transformed by the gospel. That as we consider how our relationship with you has changed, our relationships with others can't help but change either. God, we read passages like this, and we know that they can be and they have been abused, and we mourn that, and we repent of that whenever we've been a part of that or whenever we've turned a blind eye to it. But God, I pray that you would help us not throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we would trust that you give commands and you give teachings and you give structures for our good. And God, I pray that we might follow them as faithfully as we possibly can. I pray that we would do these commands justice in the way that we implement them and the way that we interpret these passages. And God, I pray that you would be glorified through that in spite of our struggles, in spite of our imperfections. 
God, may we submit to one another. May we submit to your word. May we submit to you this morning. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, the idea of submission is very foreign to many of us because we don't like the idea of submission. And yet that is exactly what God demands of us. I pray that if you haven't made that decision to submit to Christ, that you would do that this morning. Again, through submission to Christ, we find freedom from sin, but we also find a master who's actually worth serving. I pray that you would make that decision this morning. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They can tell you their stories of how they submitted to Christ. They can tell you what happened since. They can answer your questions. They can pray with you. Talk to one of those guys. Take advantage of that opportunity as we sing our last song.